Hello, this is the Russell Moore Podcast, and this is he. And we are today going again back to First Word, our series that goes through the Bible's very first book, the book of Genesis, Seeking There the Kingdom of Christ. Before we get started, if you like this podcast, if you listen to it, uh, it'll help us out a lot if you go to Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever and leave a review because it helps people to find us. And so I would really appreciate your doing that. Today, uh, we want to come to a really heavy uh, text uh, of Scripture, one that's familiar to people at, at sort of a peripheral level. They, they think about Cain and Abel in the same way that they might think about the Hatfields and the McCoys. It's a dispute, a feud that they can imagine in their minds, but often don't know a lot about what was actually going on there. And I, I say heavy because as we're going through Genesis 4 today, there's been a lot of murder. I mean, there always is a lot of murder, but there's a lot of murder at the forefront of people's minds right now because we have seen several uh, very high-profile murders uh, taking place in recent uh, weeks when I'm recording this. And, uh, you know, that, that brings up not only the sorts of questions of justice and injustice, but also those deeper questions of how could this happen? And uh, th- those are the kinds of questions that come up, for instance, when someone thinks about uh, World War I and World War II and the Holocaust and all of the, the evil bloodshed that has taken place over the centuries, the, the understanding that human beings, no matter how cultured, no matter how so-called civilized, no matter how so-called educated they are, that murderous strain always shows up, is always there. And the question is, why? Where does that come from? And why does it shock us? in the way that it does. It, it inevitably shocks us because it reminds us that there's something about humanity that has gone deeply, deeply wrong. So if you have a copy of the Bible with you, uh, turn to Genesis chapter 4, first book of the, the Bible. The, the large number is the chapter and the small numbers are the verses. And I want to start at the beginning of that chapter where the Word of God says this. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be as a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. 
Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Okay, so when we come to uh, this text, again, a lot of people, uh, when they think of Cain and Abel in sort of a cultural shorthand sense, they think of it in terms of sibling rivalry. And we all are, are at least familiar with uh, with the way that this can go on, where you have one uh, one brother or sister who resents the other, thinks that the other is more loved uh, in the in the eyes of the parents or more popular or whatever, and there's some sort of resentment, there's some sort of fighting that goes on between the two of them. I uh, heard an interview not long ago with the actor who played uh, the brother uh, in that old uh, sitcom, Everybody Loves Raymond. And uh, the gist of the sitcom was that Raymond, uh, the brother, was the more loved by the the mother, particularly. And so this actor is talking about how he learned to play a character who's resentful of his brother. He's connected to his brother, but resentful of him. And he said the way he learned to, to play it was to imagine that he's in a family where Raymond is actually the only child, but nobody told Robert the brother. And so he's trying to figure out why he's always on the outside and why he's always unloved. Now, I think everybody, to, to some degree, can relate to that because we've seen it. I just had, uh, not very long ago, uh, a family talking to me about what do they do with the fact that they've got some resentment uh, toward uh, the mother of, of one of the people in the couple because she has uh, one part of the family that she favors uh, over the other parts of the family. And so th- those are the ones she's always talking about. And those are the ones that she's uh, going to, to visit and so forth. And they said, we're just trying not to, not to resent and we don't want to be bitter. And we're trying to just figure this out. What's, what's wrong with us uh, that, that she feels that way? And if not, how do we overcome it? So that, everybody has either experienced that or they have seen it somewhere. But there's a lot more going on here than sibling rivalry and family disruption, although that certainly is here too. Let's let's sort of walk through the text and see what's happening. First thing I want you to notice is this chapter, even though it is dark and bleak, uh, it starts off with a note of mercy. There's a sign of grace there because you have immediately before this, Adam and Eve uh, sent out of the garden. They're sent into exile, out into the big wide world. And the garden is now closed to them, guarded uh, by, uh, by an angel with a fiery sword. And they're out here into the, the wildness of the world, but they're still here. As a matter of fact, what you see is that there's still marital intimacy even though that was disrupted uh, after the fall. The man and the woman were naked before each other and ashamed, remember? They were blaming each other 
for uh, the fall, but Adam knew his wife Eve, language that refers to sexual intimacy. So that's still there. Uh, There's still that blessing of fruitfulness and multiplying. She gave birth to a son, and she said, I have gotten him with the help of the Lord. So so there's still the the birth of a new generation. There's still, you can tell by the way that Abel is spoken of as a keeper of the sheep, the younger brother, and Cain is spoken of as uh, as a farmer, that uh, the cultivating of the ground, even though it is uh, cursed in its experience, it's still going on. The dominion over the animal world, even though, again, that's cursed too, it's still going on. And you still have, uh, you have offerings that are being made to the Lord, which is showing you that God here is not a territorial deity. It's not that when, uh, when Adam and Eve were sent out of the presence of the Lord in the garden, that temple sanctuary, it would be very reasonable uh, for someone hearing this uh, story for the first time to assume, well, they're away from God and so uh, they can't uh, they can't communicate with God. No, God's there too because they're they're making offerings to Him, and uh, He's He's choosing to relate to them. So what's what we're seeing here in these these opening chapters is that the curse is here, but it hasn't obliterated the uh, original blessing. If you have original sin and you have original blessing, and they both are still ongoing. So I think one of the challenges that we often have is to see both of those truths at the same time. There's a a concept in Christian theology that that comes out of the Calvinist strain of Christian theology of total depravity. And uh, people will sometimes say, do you believe in total depravity? And I will say, yes, but it depends on what you're meaning when you say total depravity. Because if what you mean by that is the sort of thing that Augustine meant and Calvin meant and others, that uh, depravity affects every part of a person, then yes, I agree with that. There's not one part of us that is cordoned off from sin. So uh, you, you can't say, well, my body is sinful, my bodily instincts are sinful, but my thoughts are not or my thoughts are sinful, but my heart is not. No, it, it, it affects every part of us. But if what somebody means by total depravity is that somebody is as depraved as he or she can possibly be, and that, uh, and that there is no spark of grace uh, present in the world, then obviously not. Instead, Uh, What the scripture is showing you here is that God's mercy is shining into the darkness, uh, but it's real darkness. And so what's happening here is that Cain and Abel are carrying out these different aspects of the charge that, that God has given to the man and the woman. Now, some people, when they come to this text, there are a lot of people who have looked at this text over the history of the, the years and have said, well, this is about the move from hunter-gatherers to agricultural uh, life. And so they would say the writer of this story is wanting to see nomads who uh, care for, for flocks and move from place to place as being morally superior 
than uh, than the agrarians and those who are, are working the ground. I, I don't think that's at all uh, what's going on here. As a matter of fact, I think that the shepherding of Abel and the ground cultivation of Cain are both complementary with one another. And we'll see later on why I think that is and how I think that is. But it's important at this point to say what we're seeing here, I think, is not so much a breaking off of the command that God has given to cultivate to Adam and Eve, as much as what we see is specialization. You have Cain focusing on the working of the ground, Abel focusing on the the cultivating of animals. And I think that what, what you see taking place here is if you had a healthy and God-honoring developing in these two, then you would have seen uh, you would have seen both of these vocations working themselves out in ways that were commended by God. Uh, somebody asked me uh, one time, as I knew that I had talked about the Enneagram one time as a tool that sometimes people use to sort of classify people by personality, and said, uh, well, what do you think uh, would Jesus's Enneagram number have been. So I asked a friend of mine, Ian Cron, who's written uh, sort of, he's sort of an expert on this and is a psychotherapist and, and has been working in this field for a long time. I said, I'm just curious, Ian, if you had to type Jesus, uh, what would you type him as? And he said, well, I think that in Jesus, what you have, since you have um, someone who's not only fully God, but fully human, and who is the firstborn of all humanity, and everything is summed up in him. He said, I think that what you have in Jesus is the healthy aspects of every personality type uh, there, which is one of the reasons why Jesus is such a complicated figure uh, to, to figure out as you're reading the Gospels. And I've really thought about that a lot since he said that, because I I definitely think that's true with, for instance, the spiritual gifts that we see being uh, given uh, by Jesus to the church. Uh, All of those gifts show up in their highest form uh, in the life of Jesus. He's the integrating point for all of them. So I think in the same way, this vocational kind of calling here for Cain and Abel, uh, if they had been under the direction of, as Paul would say, the spirit rather than the flesh, both of them would have been aspects of what God is seeking to reveal about himself. But that's not what happens. So in the text, what happens is that there there are offerings being made. Now, here's why I think this is important to get. And it's really important to get for those of us who are um, contemporary American, North American Christians, uh, and wherever you are in the world, uh, it, because this is this is really increasingly a global phenomenon. But it certainly is the case in North America. Uh, there's sometimes this understanding that our ethics come directly from our cognition. And so if we think the right things, meaning if we have the right positions on things, so we, we know the answers to certain questions, then we are going to be able to act ethically. Uh, that, that's often the assumption with the way that we rear our children, the way that we try to disciple people. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. Now, there's an important part of that that's true there. 
And Romans 12 uh, talks about don't be conformed to the world, but by the renewing of your minds. Uh, we can talk later about what minds uh, means in that context, but there's an important aspect of that. But notice in this text, as in Romans 12, it starts with this act of worship. So in Romans 12, it's not before it's the renewing of your minds, it's the offering up of your body as a living sacrifice, pleasing to God. And so the issue is often in terms of our running off the rails when it comes to obedience with God, it's often not, first of all, cognitive. It can be. Uh, it, It can be that we Uh, for instance, start to, because of the hiddenness of of God in our lives, that we start to doubt his presence. But usually it's not because the hiddenness of God is prompting faulty ideas as much as it is that the response that we have to the hiddenness of God takes us away from God experientially in terms of knowing him in such a way that we then build our ideas around what it is that we're, uh, that, that we're doing and what we're living. That's, that's one of the reasons why there have been studies that have uh, been done, for instance, showing uh, what happens in terms of pornography use. And what one study I was looking at uh, showed is that uh, the higher the rate of pornography use, the, the more likely a person is going to be to, for lack of a better word, deconvert. Now, that is not because they say deconverting people are more likely to use pornography. It's because there is something that the pornography use does. And there are all sorts of, you know, there are all sorts of reasons that you can give for this. And people who, who don't like historic Christianity could easily say, well, it's because of an unhealthy view of sexuality. I don't think that's what it is. Uh, an unhealthy sense of sexuality that leads to guilt uh, in people. But whatever it is, uh, I would argue it is the immorality and the, the protecting of oneself from the presence of God that we see in Genesis chapter 3 that then can ultimately lead to what becomes plausible or implausible to a person at the level of ideas. Now, I hesitate to even say that because some of you are going to think, well, what you're saying is that people who aren't believers are morally flawed in some way more than professing believers are, and that is not at all the case. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the things that can often be shocking to people is how often complete unbelievers are less morally flawed than a lot of professing believers that they know. The point is, though, that a human being is not a set of ideas or worldviews. And that where we start is not with what we think. Where we start is what we worship. And every human being, Romans chapter 1, is created as a worshiping creature. The question is just going to be what the person worships. So you have Cain and Abel here both bringing uh, offerings before God, and they're offerings that are related to their vocations. So Cain brings Uh, the fruit of the ground as a farmer. Abel brings an offering from the flocks uh, as a shepherd. And the text tells us that God shows regard for Abel's sacrifice, the second born son, but not for Cain's. Now, Leon Cass, I've talked about before, the philosopher 
who wrote on Genesis, uh, made a really interesting point. He said, you know, the text doesn't ever tell us how they knew that God had regard for one uh, sacrifice and not for the other. Is it because uh, there was sort of a flourishing or lack of it uh, in, in terms of those vocations going forward? Or is it because Abel's offering was consumed by fire? Uh, as we see later on in First Kings uh, 17 with Elijah and the priests of Baal, where God uh, God receives the sacrifice by fire. We don't know. We just know that God regarded, he received Abel's sacrifice and did not receive Cain's. Now, it seems to me that there are at least two problems with Cain's sacrifice, because if you just look at this, it's easy to see it as just arbitrary. God decided arbitrarily to accept one sacrifice and not the other. And and probably uh, that's the way that Cain is explaining it to himself psychologically here. But I think there are two problems that show up in the text. The first is a kind of internal motivation that Cain probably thought that by bringing his work, bringing what it is that he had directly cultivated, that he would put God in his debt. And so there's, a, there's an Old Testament scholar I really admire named Ken Matthews down at uh, Beeson Divinity School who uh, has written on this and said, uh, it's important to understand who would have been uh, reading Genesis or, or having Genesis read uh, in the first place. And this would have been uh, people who have experienced Egyptian bondage. And so what uh, the Cain and Abel story is a reminder of, just like the Jacob and Esau story and the, the Judah story, telling that story again, remembering that history again, is a way of pointing out Israel is the firstborn son, God says in Exodus, but the, the sacrifice is received not on the basis of status, just because you're the firstborn. It's received on the basis of covenant, on the basis of relationship. Now, this is important because you're going to see Jesus as firstborn son, firstborn from the dead, firstborn of a creation, firstborn of all humanity. And his sacrifice, book of Hebrews says, is received because of his obedience. So it, it wasn't just his, uh, his title. It was the way that he was living out that title. So there's a a tendency, I think, to assume that God, God receives me on the basis of what it is that I have done in terms of performance or in terms of vocation. And I, I think that there's some of you hearing that who would say, yes, there are some people who think that. I think almost everybody has to grapple with that inclination. And you can do it while having all sorts of biblical ideas about grace and still think this and still think that if I just do this, then God will love me and God will bless me. And if I just avoid doing that, then God will love me and God will bless me, that transactional view. And I think that we can see that showing up with Cain. Uh, in the way that, for instance, Jude 
talks about Cain in Jude 11, when he's talking about uh, the false teachers that have come into the church, he says, they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Well, what was Balaam? Balaam was somebody who was being paid to uh, curse uh, on on behalf of God and to bless. So that that uh, tendency toward a transactional view of the self is is something that almost every human being has to find and has to crucify. Uh, so the the fact that Cain here is becoming angry rather than repentant when his sacrifice is not received shows us that something was wrong in terms of internal motivation, uh, probably from the very beginning. Uh, back when I was in, um, in the uh, world of, of teaching and education, training uh, ministers, uh, one of the things that would happen every so often, because I was a professor and I was a dean, I was a provost, and uh, I would get a telephone call sometimes from somebody who would say, hey, I wanted you to know that I was in your class back in whatever year, and I cheated. I um, said that I'd done the reading, and I was lying, or I plagiarized somebody's paper, or something like that. And what I started doing, just really, just as sort of an experiment, is to start saying, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll revoke your degree and then we will, uh, you can retake that class. And when you do, uh, then you can gain the degree back. And the reason I did that is because I was shocked by how many people would become angry and become outraged because what they were expecting me to say is what I normally would have said, which is, well, I forgive you. Don't, don't worry about it anymore. Thank you for confessing this. Go on your way. But when I said, no, you can, you can come and, and try to make things right. Then they became angry, which showed me that in those cases, and it wasn't very many people who did, most people responded well, but it showed me that what they wanted was not to make things right and to confess sin. It was instead to have a kind of transaction where they could get it off of their conscience without having to worry about it anymore. That, that may well be a part of what's going on here with Cain. He, he believes himself to be, as Jesus is going to talk about uh, later on, often this understanding of being a slave rather than being a son or uh, being a, uh, a, an employee. Uh, rather than being an heir. And what's the difference between the two? Well, the difference is an employee works and receives his wages, and a, a son, an heir, is in relationship with the father. So the sort of mentality that uh, the prodigal son has when he says, I'm going to go back to my father's house and his, his hired servants are treated better than I am right now, I'm going to ask to become one of them. Or uh, in Galatians 4, where the Apostle Paul talks about our uh, being made into children of God, but we want to go back to being slaves to the principalities and powers. Well, why? Because in, in one sense, in the sense of wage earning, there's a way to keep your, uh, keep your pride intact. 
uh, in that way. And that, that probably is going on with Cain. So the internal motivation, but secondly, uh, I believe an issue was the content of the sacrifice. Now there are people who inevitably, whenever they come to this say, oh, if you talk about the fact that Abel is offering blood, then you're just reading back into the text, the New Testament about the blood of Jesus, or uh, you're reading back into it, Exodus and the sacrificial system and Leviticus and and so forth. Uh, I don't think you're reading anything back into it because I think that all scripture is breathed out by God. So there's, there's a a unified author to all of scripture and there's a unified history that's taking place here. So you're not reading something into it when you read the Bible as a coherent book. And I think that one theme that runs throughout uh, the whole Bible is the significance of blood. Abel is offering a violent sacrifice. It requires the taking of a life, while Cain is offering up the end result of his sweat, of his uh, work, of his labor. Now, the difference between those two things is that, yes, Abel is involved in some cultivation. He has to to protect uh, these livestock. He has to raise these, these livestock. But Blood at the most fundamental level is a mystery. It is evident that blood is coming from something that is not created, is not technology. Now, agriculture is also the same way. Uh, God gives the increase, we see, but it's not as obvious that that is the case. And when you're dealing with uh, blood, you're dealing with death in a way that, uh, that is disturbing because it points you toward human death. Now, if you go into the Mosaic Law later on, the Mosaic Law is going to have both cereal offerings, offerings of, of produce, of, of, uh, of uh, agriculture, and animal offerings. Both of those two things are going to be present, which is why I say uh, there's a sense in which Cain's sacrifice, if it had been given in a different way, could have been uh, part of what it is that God would have wanted to receive, but only through the shedding of blood, Hebrew says, do we find forgiveness of sin. And so in Abel's sacrifice, we are seeing this understanding of judgment of uh, justification, of the, the need for reconciliation with God, not just someone giving over some of the, uh, some of the, uh, the works of his hands. Now, the gospel brings those two things together. So if you think about, for instance, the Lord's table, what do we have at the Lord's table? We have bread and wine, not, not even just, not just wheat and grapes, so this is cultivated uh, wheat into bread, cultivated grapes into wine. This takes human uh, involvement and human activity. But what are these things? Jesus says, this is my body, which was broken for you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which was poured out for you. So these things are 
pointing toward, signifying, we won't get into a debate. We have all sorts of listeners this have all sorts of, uh, of different views about, about what the Lord's table, how that is, uh, what that means. But regardless of what you think, uh, regardless what your views are, you have both nature and culture there, which point beyond nature and culture to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So we can see, even in the way that we come to the Lord's table together, that we are in need of a restored cosmos and we are in need of a bloody sacrifice. But we can only get to the first through the second. It is only through the way of the shedding of blood that we get there. That's where the priority is. I think that's what goes wrong here. And so when Cain comes and he, and he has this sacrifice and it's not regarded, and Abel has a sacrifice that is regarded, and God says to Cain, why is your face fallen? Why are you uh, resentful about this? He gives him a warning that sin is crouching at the door. It wants to rule over you and you must subdue it. So this is an important uh, line that I think sometimes gets kind of run over when we're going through this. You have had God saying to the man and the woman about the rule that they are to have over the creation, the rule that they are to have over the garden, the, the, uh, the cultivation that they are to have over the external world. But what this text is talking about is the, the rule over oneself, self-control, that there is something that is crouching at the door, that's hidden. You don't, you don't see something that's hiding from you, but it is waiting to leap out and to get you. So it's, it's, kind, of, uh, it's kind of spooky uh, the way that even the image that God is giving a violent, hidden intruder is exactly what happens in terms of Cain toward Abel. So this internal reality for Cain later becomes an external reality where he is literally playing the part of sin in the way that God's formulating it here. So you have this, this sense of uh, this sense of, of fallenness, sense of fallen facedness, if I can make up a word here. Uh, he's, he feels rejected. And that is, is then developed into a hostility toward Abel. Now, this is important because you're going to see later on in the Bible how envy and resentment can do that, can, can lead to violence. So James will say, for instance, why do you have wars uh, among you? It's because you have these passions you can't control. And it's because you, you want what you don't have. And so you, you kill in order to get it. So envy and resentment and shame and all of those things then manifest themselves in Cain's violence. I, I, uh, I think I'm going to write about this uh, in my newsletter because I've had it on my mind, but I keep starting to write on it and then I put it aside. I can't tell you how many times in, sometimes you will find people in church life who are, what the Apostle Paul would call quarrelsome in the sense that they're always, always looking for a controversy and always looking for a fight. And I wondered, why is that? And this older pastor said to me one time, 
He said, what you have to have is a sense of compassion because people want to feel important. And sometimes this is the only way that people can find to feel important. And because often uh, people are ashamed of something and they're lashing out because of the shame and the hiddenness of the shame. And I, I, he told me that years ago before I'd experienced anything in ministry. But as time has gone on, I have seen that happen over and over and over again, where people who are constantly and always in some sort of conflict with other people, it later becomes revealed that there's something awful uh, underneath the surface there, that the shame drives the hostility and, and drives the uh, sense of violence, however that violence manifests itself, uh, sometimes in, in verbal uh, violence. But you have a hostility that is going against his brother, rooted in this uh, envy, rooted in this shame. And as he takes the blood of Abel, as he kills Abel, what's significant here is remember the text has already told you that humanity is created in the image of God. Already told you this. And you've got in Cain, the Apostle John will tell us in 1 John uh, chapter 3, 12, that there's a, a link between Cain and the devil, the spirit of murder. So the, the, the way that Jesus describes the devil as the one who is a murderer from the beginning, Cain in this act of violence is living out the way of the serpent. He will bruise uh, your heel. And humanity, God says, of the serpent. Cain is living that out. And not only that, he's repeating the sin of his parents, not just in disobeying God's command, but also in hiding. Uh, he, he hides the body of Abel and in uh, deflecting responsibility. So when God says, where is your brother Abel? This is, this is very much like uh, when God says in the garden after the fall, Adam, where are you? Where is your brother Abel? His response is to say, am I my brother's keeper? Seems to be a play on words here. Uh, so he's, he's uh, making fun of Abel's vocation as a, a tender of, of sheep, as a, as a sheep keeper. And he says, am I a keeper of Abel? So he, he deflects responsibility. He, uh, lies without explicitly lying, again, imaging uh, the serpent, you shall not surely die in the day that you eat of it. You shall be like God, knowing good from evil. Uh, there's a sense in which uh, there, there's not an outright lie told there uh, in, in terms of if you just look, if you just diagram the sentence, but it is a lie. Because the question is, where is Abel? And his, his response gives the implication, I don't know, and I can't be held responsible for that. But God knows, of course. God sees this. He's not questioning in order to find this out. He is questioning in order to bring about the response. And he says, the earth, the ground is crying out. The blood of your brother is crying out, and the earth is crying out. So, what God is giving here is a picture of the creation itself as a witness to the deed that was, that was done. 
Uh, we see this elsewhere in Scripture. I mean, uh, I think immediately of James chapter 5, where James says uh, to the, the landowners that are exploiting their workers— that there's a God hears these cries that are uh, coming out. And if you think about the way that this murder is pictured throughout the rest of Scripture, John says, don't, be, don't go in the way of Cain, the way toward violence. And he, he defines that violence not just in terms of physical uh, murder, but in terms of hatred of the brothers or, or a refusal to love brothers and sisters is in the way of Cain. Uh, the scripture speaks of Abel as this first of the martyrs. Uh, so Matthew 25, 25, for instance, and Hebrews 11, 4, about the, uh, the, the martyred blood of Abel here. Jesus comes in, and as Hebrews tells us, his blood speaks a better word than that of Abel. Well, what does that mean? I think what it means is, not only is, of course, Jesus' sacrifice of himself infinitely greater than, uh, than a sinful human being's death, but also because Jesus here offers a sacrifice that is commended, like Abel, except infinitely better. He also is murdered at the instigation of a serpent, also infinitely more of a sacrifice. But if you notice what's happening in the life of Jesus, you have the offering of the sacrifice and the injustice against oneself taking place in the same person. So if, if you say, who killed Jesus? Did the Roman Empire kill Jesus? Yes. Did the crowds kill Jesus? Yes. But in one sense, Jesus is saying, no one takes my life. I willingly lay it down. That's the sort of tension that the Apostle Peter talks about in uh, his, his sermons in the early part of Acts, where he says, lawless hands crucified him. This was unjust and a sin, and this is the purpose and the plan of God. So, God sent his son into the world in order to actively offer up a sacrifice. So both of those two things are brought together in the life of Jesus with infinitely more value than, uh, than what happened either in terms of the sacrifice of an animal or in terms of the, uh, the, the death that is experienced by Abel. And you also have Jesus here who is redefining the meaning of brotherhood so that uh, when Cain says, am I my brother's keeper, Jesus speaks of himself as a good shepherd, as a, a tender of the sheep. And when he's resurrected from the dead, he says to Mary, don't cling to me uh, because I'm, I'm going back to my father, but go to my brother's and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. He's, he's immediately thinking of the brothers, and he's, he's tending to them. And even as he does that, he's initially supposed to be, by Mary, the gardener. Isn't it interesting how all of that comes together in Jesus Christ? He's supposed to be the gardener, and he is planting a, a vine, and he is the vine that brings forth good fruit, and he's the shepherd who cares for the sheep, and he's the lamb 
who offers himself up as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, all of these things together. So that when, uh, when Cain is filled with rage and anger here, what, what John is warning us against is to say, when you hate someone else, you hate the brothers and sisters, what's at the root of that is a spirit of murder. Now, that doesn't mean, I passed a guy one time who was talking about, it was a college student, it was on a college campus, and he had a group of other college students around him, and he said, well, uh, you know, Jesus said, if you've had lust in your heart, then you have already committed adultery. So it seems to me, if you have lustful thoughts, you might as well uh, go ahead and do the deed. Well, I'm, I'm I had to interrupt the conversation to say, well, that means that if you're uh, wrongfully angry at somebody, you might as well go ahead and murder them. That's not what Jesus's point is. No, God forbid. His point is that the move toward adultery doesn't start with the act. It starts with the internal disposition. And the move toward murder doesn't start with the act. It starts with the internal disposition. That's what's happening here. So that uh, what, uh, what takes place is that there is, a, there is a way of idolizing one's own flesh, one's own status is what happens with Cain, in a way that then projects violence out against someone else. And this is the way of the snake, not the way of Christ. But here's the most important thing, I think, that I want you to remember when we go from Genesis 4, is it starts with a picture of grace and mercy, and it ends with a picture of grace and mercy. Now, both of them are complicated and mixed in with some terrible things, but but those signposts are there because when Cain is ultimately found out to be a murderer, God has every right to take his life, but God doesn't. Cain says, he, he gives to Cain just as he had given to Adam and Eve, not immediate death. He gives him a temporary suspension of doom and he gives him exile. He sends him out from that place. And Cain says, but if you do that, I'm going to be a wanderer. I'm going to be a fugitive. Uh, and, and somebody's going to see me and kill me. And God puts a mark on him. We don't know what this is, but there's a mark that is put on Cain that somehow signifies to people, don't, uh, don't take vengeance upon him. Don't kill him. So the, the mark here is not some sort of stigma. It is instead a protection for Cain, telling people who he is and that he is protected by God. And he goes out from there and he creates a new life. He builds a city. Uh, he has a family. He gives birth uh, to the, the line of Enoch and names that city uh, after uh, his son Enoch. So there is life that goes forward from there with someone who has done awful things. Now, that's not the gospel. Gospel's a lot more than that. Uh, in, the, in the gospel, we're not just given this temporary suspension of doom. We're, we're actually covered in the blood of Christ 
included in the sacrifice of Christ such that he's our priest before God and all our sin is carried off by him and we're united to him so that what's true of him is true of us as a head to a body before God. So it's it's much better news than what's taking place right here. But there's a flash and a sign here that God is saying the story's going to go on and the story's going to go forward. Why? Because in the fullness of time, he's going to bring us Christ Jesus. He's going to bring us the gospel. I had a friend, when I think about exile, I think about this, a friend who several years ago, uh, he was living in a in a big city, and he said, "I'm forget this. I'm leaving this. I'm going back home to my hometown, and I'm going to rekindle my roots there. And I remember when he did that, I was so envious of him. I hope not Cain-level envious, but I was envious of him because I thought, I would love to do that. It would be great to be back uh, in my hometown and to start back over where I where I started and rekindle those connections and so forth. And several years later, I was talking to him about it, and he said, well, actually, it's been awful. He said, because he said, I've, I've come back in order not to be in exile, and I've ended up being more of an exile than I was before, because uh, here in my hometown, uh, everyone just continues to see me as the person who left. He says, so I'm, I'm kind of still a person without a home, even in my hometown. Uh, you know, there are some people who do that. It works out really well. Some people who don't. But there are a lot of people who go to the city to escape something. They want to forget where they came from. But for some people, the escape to the city is a way for them ultimately to be able to reconnect. So I was thinking about Cain. And as Cain leaves, he's bearing the guilt uh, of this murder. What's the end result of Cain's story? We don't know. We don't know what ultimately happens with him. But it made me think of a line from Willie Morris, fellow Mississippian of mine, who in a, a book that he, he wrote called North Toward Home uh, about his life in New York City as somebody who grew up in the Mississippi Delta. And he talks about being back home in Mississippi, and he was in the airport headed headed back to New York, and the book ends with this. Why was it always in such moments, just before I leave the South, did I always feel some easing of a great burden? It was as if someone had taken some terrible weight off my shoulders or as if some old grievance had suddenly fallen away. The big plane took off and circled in widening arcs over the city, over the landmarks of my past and my people's. Then slowly, with a lifting heaviest steel, it circles once more, and turned north toward home. Exile's awful. And the the terms of exile can destroy us. But exile also can lead one back home. And if you think about Cain and what could be more awful than this, the, the shedding of innocent human blood, and Cain knows that he's going to bear the, the guilt of this wreckage, and that he can't ever outrun it. And yet God gives to him a place of refuge, a place of safety, and perhaps space for repentance. And how does that come about? It doesn't come about through Cain's performance. 
It doesn't come about through Cain's strength. It comes about through his vulnerability. He is only at the place, perhaps, where he can stop comparing himself with others. He can stop seeing himself as in a transaction before God and maybe, just maybe, start to see himself as a sinner in need of grace, as a murderer in need of forgiveness, as an exile in need of a home, can only happen then. Flannery O'Connor, in A Good Man is Hard to Find, talking about uh, this grandmother who was murdered by the misfit, this killer in the short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. She says that, she quotes the misfit as saying, she would have been a good woman if it had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. So the only time that she actually came to a grappling with who she ought to be is when she faced death. Maybe the only time that Cain uh, would be able to come to a real accounting of who he is before God is in being sent away. So there's a, there's a writer, a book uh, that came out several years ago about O'Connor that, that says this, the mystery that Flannery O'Connor engenders better than any other writer is not that a good man is hard to find, but that to find one takes hardness and difficulty. This mystery of grace from suffering portrayed again and again in her fiction resulted from the daily mercy that was her own sickness of lupus. To put it differently, Flannery O'Connor was a good woman because lupus was there every minute of her adult life. There's a sense in which having uh, an understanding of our own frailty and our own wreckage and our own judgment, when we really look at that and see that, that is the only way to ultimately see and to find grace. See who we are and carry it to crucifixion. So that means this story is not just that of two brothers at the dawn of history. It's also our story, too. And we've come here not to raise Cain, but to bury him. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you haven't yet subscribed, please do so on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or Pocket Casts or wherever you listen. And if you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe the cover art and you'll find show notes, including some details that you might have missed. And we'll pick uh, right back up here in Genesis next time with another first word. This is Russell Moore. Onward. Onward.